0: All right, we're going to continue on with our time of study and the survey of church history. And I want to just kind of take a few minutes to quickly sort of uh, summarize where we went from uh, last week and, and to get us moving forward into our study today. It's going to be obviously impossible for us to go back too far in time. But I do want to at least highlight the, the sort of the major thrust of our, of our subject that we're looking at uh, right now, and that's this idea of this major transition that the church is undergoing. You have, uh, obviously, the, the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost and the, the church being formed there in Jerusalem, and it's a very Judaistic church. It's a very Jewish-centric church focused centrally on uh, um, historic and traditional Judaism as a point of reference, as a point of worship practice. But there is this transition that that Luke brings us through in the book of Acts where you see the the church transitioning from a very Jewish-centric way of understanding the gospel to a more comprehensive way. And I just use the term Christianity just to kind of give us some type of term to hang on to to understand this transition um, those that were Judaistic in their, in their perspective, those Jewish Christians, those early Jewish Christians were certainly Christians. I don't mean to make a distinction there, but just to give us a sense of the perspective of transition that's taking place. And today we're going to see how that, that comes to us in bold relief uh, in Acts as we look at a few different um, chapters there, kind of survey them. This certainly takes place or begins to take place in, in significant fashion at the stoning of Stephen um, and, and there, in Acts chapter six and seven, we see that account, but then you move forward into Acts chapter eight, and you see how this message of the gospel begins to spread. So you have the stoning of Stephen which leads to a mass persecution of Christians of, of the, these early Christians in Jerusalem, and it tells us and Luke tells us in Acts that the, the church begins to scatter um, and so it begins to spread out and it really you really begin to see this this transition of geography, of course, the, the moving out of these believers who had gathered there in Jerusalem and sort of stayed there and began to be discipled and began to sort of understand the implications of this faith. And they were having all things in common and they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and so on and so forth. And, and then you have this, this persecution that comes after the stoning of Stephen. And so you have a geographical disbursement that takes place as a result of that. You also see this, this strategy developing, uh, this uh, sort of a shift in strategy in terms of the gospel and who, who is the target for the gospel. That, that mindset has to be broadened, but it also has to settle in to particularly the, the apostles and in, in real pronounced way, Peter uh, has to settle in in terms of a theological reality that has to be understood and, and, and embraced in a new way and we'll see that significantly today. Uh, we saw this in kind of a, a real good, tight, biblical example in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. This, this spread of the gospel, just like Jesus said would happen in Jerusalem. It's in 8, 8, chapter 4, it says, now those who were scattered. So you had them scattered from Jerusalem. And it says they went about preaching the word in the surrounding area, which would be Judea. And then, of course, you have the account of Philip going down to Jerusalem the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed Christ to them. You have Philip's ministry specifically being conducted in Samaria. So you have this, this spread of the gospel exactly the way uh, Jesus promised that it would happen, although I would, I would you know, estimate that the, the believers that were gathered there before Christ's ascension did not necessarily forecast that, that that geographic spread of the witness into Samaria would come as a result of them being persecuted. Um, However, that is what God used. And, of course, we can apply that that principle that we see over and over again in Scripture and we see playing out over and over again in our lives and how God utilizes providentially and sovereignly even trials, even persecution to accomplish His purposes um, in, in, in the way that He sees fit. And, in fact, we understand how trials and persecution refine even us as believers, and, and conform us more to the image of Christ. And so you have this happening. But you have Philip going to Samaria. He has this Samaritan witness, which is very effective. Uh, many come to faith in Christ. You have this encounter with Simon the Magician, where you see this example of what seems to be a false kind of belief, sort of a response for selfish purposes to the gospel. You have this uh, witness to the Ethiopian eunuch, where you have what is a, a, a God-fearer, um, even possibly a, a, a proselyte, not a Jewish, someone of Jewish descent, but someone who proselyte, who came to the Jewish faith from outside, who comes to faith in Christ. So you have this, this again, this spread of the gospel message and, and this recognition that this, this witness of the gospel or this salvation through Christ is not just for the Jewish people. Um, and then you have, obviously, uh, the, the, the information there given of, of Philip Moving, uh, going to Gaza and then up to Caesarea where he ends up settling, and we'll kind of run into Philip again. But that's kind of the the spread there that takes place, but that, that leads us to another pivotal moment in Acts chapter 9, and that's Saul's conversion, which is kind of where we left off. We did not get too far in this particular uh, portion. We just kind of announced it, basically, and so today we want to spend some time digging into this a little more deeply. Obviously, this is probably one of those accounts, one of those passages of Scripture that you're very familiar with in terms of the details of what takes place. Um, But let's just kind of look at this from the standpoint, and again, keeping this perspective in our minds that we're talking about, in a historical flow here, a major transition of this gospel witness, of this spread of salvation in Christ as it expands out, not just geographically, but to various peoples and various people groups uh, in this day and time. You see this um, beginning here in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. And in particular, I want to draw your attention. If you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, you can kind of follow along with with some of these uh, principles or or points that I'm going to highlight here. But you you see where uh, Saul, who becomes Paul, obviously, where he is at the opening of Acts chapter 9. We already saw that he was at the, the, the martyrdom, the execution, the stoning of Stephen we saw that. We also saw in Acts chapter 8 where he was basically you know, the leader of this wave of persecution. Um, he, was, he was the one that was on the forefront of that, leading that cause. And here we see at the very beginning of Acts chapter 9, it says, But Saul, and here's his state of mind, here's his mission, here's his zeal, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging in, to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, this is, this is Saul. This is sort of the profile of Saul at this particular time. Breathing threats on a mission to destroy this, this thing called the way. Paul's view of himself was that he was a, a man of righteousness, that he was a defender of God, of the law of God, of God's chosen people. He, he, is, he is on the right side of this whole equation. Not only that, but he understands and sees himself as a man with power and authority. He's the one that's been given this, this commission to go, to, to seize these people who are following this way. He's the representative, basically, of the Jewish leaders, to go and carry out this righteous mission. But what I like to, to kind of use as a, as a point here is this reality check. This, this to me is, a, is, is this, not only is it a pivotal uh, event with a pivotal person in the history of the church and the redemptive work of God comprehensively, but it is an, an amazing um, vignette, an amazing picture of what happens in salvation. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of us have to see a bright light and be blinded and thrown from a horse, right? But it does does give us an indication, this is what happens in true salvation. There is an absolute, unequivocal, unmistakable reality check that takes place, that we come face to face with ultimate, transcendent reality. All of, the, all of the self-deception, all of the self-delusion about who we are, about who got it all of that just completely comes face-to-face with reality. And that's what happens with the Apostle Paul. He has this astounding reality check that takes place. We see here in... Let me get to my notes. We see here that, that as, the, as the passage goes on, instead of him really being this, this righteous warrior or crusader for God and his people, that he's actually completely on the wrong side of this work. And so his, even his physical posture is right-sized. I mean, it begins with him seeing the blazing glory of the risen Christ and being thrown from his horse to the ground. So even his physical posture is laid low, and he's blinded by this. So, so this reality, this ultimate reality that he has to face, it actually has a, a right sizing, I will call it. It puts him in right disposition before this holy God, this risen Christ. And then you have this soul-piercing voice of the risen Christ with one question penetrates him to the very core and puts this in total perspective. And you know the question. Why are you persecuting me? Now, that is not just a significant question for the Apostle Paul, but that is an amazing statement about the church. This this puts who the church is in vivid awareness for anybody who's paying attention to this passage of Scripture. This is who the church is. Why are you persecuting me? An amazing question. This is, this is a, a question that really, uh, it's, it's this question that basically initiates what I like to call this intense season of discipleship the Apostle Paul is going to undergo. This is sort of the beginning of the Apostle Paul having to have his complete orientation shifted and turned around um, and, and but it also is this confirmation of what Jesus prayed in John chapter seventeen in that high priestly prayer. This just says this is true. What Jesus prayed for, and of course you know when Jesus prays, it's gonna. He's praying according to the will of God. Perfectly, it will come to pass. It will be so. So turn to John chapter seventeen and let's just look at that so that we can understand as we're thinking about the church and the church history, that we have a clear understanding, even from this example in Paul's life, of who the church is. John chapter 17, you can just look. There's a lot there, obviously. This is a very rich passage of Scripture, this whole high priestly prayer. But I would just draw your attention, starting in verse 20. Jesus is praying. He says, I do not ask for these only. So, his beginning of his prayer, he's praying for the, the 12, the disciples that are with him. He's about to go to the cross and he's praying for them that they would be held, that they would be kept, uh, that they would be protected, that they would be protected from the enemy. He's praying for the 12. But then he begins to pray for Paul, for the Samaritan believers. For the Gentile believers. He's praying now. This is is a forward-looking prayer into Acts, basically, and even into 2018 at Faith Community Church. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you love me. This is the church, this union, a perfect union with Christ himself. And Jesus makes this crystal clear to Paul, completely reorients his understanding of what this way that he refers to really is all about. Not just what the movement is about, but who these people actually are by this question, why are you persecuting me? That we may become perfectly one and that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you loved me. We can't, we can't overstate this truth in terms of our understanding of what it means for us to be called by God and brought by His grace and the work of Christ on the cross into His body, the church. There is a oneness here with Christ Himself, so much so that the enemies of Christ are accused, in Paul's case, of persecuting Him. It's personal. When we are thinking about our own identity, our own sense of purpose, if you want to go to a, a place of, of, of reality in terms of this reality check, this is a place you can go to and have your whole perspective on what it means to be in Christ reoriented as it's needed. That even, even when we're being persecuted, that we are identified with Christ. We see this all throughout the New Testament. Even Peter talks about this in his letters of how we are, we are persecuted and we shouldn't be surprised by it because we're just identified with Christ as he was persecuted, as he suffered. That's, just, that's the oneness in Christ. So this is an amazing encounter and an amazing statement with one question Jesus penetrates through every false notion of who the church is and he cuts right to the chase and he says, why are you persecuting me? Of course, the the apostle Paul, Saul at the time, still is not clear on the matter as you might imagine. I mean, this is a pretty overwhelming experience for him. He asked the question in verse 5, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, and he reemphasizes the point, whom you are persecuting. And then the Apostle Paul has this idea of power and authority reoriented because Jesus says, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Let let me clarify for you, Saul, who really has power here, who who is really in charge. Now I want you to just think about this experience, even though we, we tend to look at this experience of the Apostle Paul and we tend to sort of elevate it in certain ways to some, some sort of almost even a, um, I don't know, a fantasy version of, of reality. But if you just think about salvation, about real salvation, is this not what happens? Is this not what must happen? That we must come face to face with the living God and his brightness and his glory and his holiness and have that give us a clear picture of who we are in light of that? So there's so much so that we fall. We just just fall out, recognizing His glory and our sinfulness. And then we recognize who really is on the throne, who really is in power, even over us. And then we become submissive to His loving identification of us with Him in perfect union. As his people, and so we go and we wait for him to tell us what we 're to do that 's salvation that 's walking with christ and that 's what the apostle Paul experienced. The chapter goes on after this amazing conversion account, and you see him having this sort of this commission that takes place um, in the account there in, in chapter nine verses ten to nineteen, where the Lord appears to a Jewish disciple in Damascus, which gives us an indication, obviously, that the gospel had reached even as far out as Damascus. Uh, quite, quite possibly, as a result of this persecution and 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 Jewish Christian spread. We know, as we looked at this earlier, that that Jewish uh, Jewish people came from all over the place into Jerusalem for Pentecost. We looked at that sort of that that diagram that had them coming from all over the place. So it's. Totally realistic to to accept the fact that there would be believers, Jewish believers, in Damascus. And certainly there was one named Ananias. The Lord appears to him and tells him, you need to go find Saul of Tarsus. And here we get an indication of Saul's reputation. Because Ananias, even though he recognizes that he is receiving a vision from the Lord, because he addresses him as Lord. Ananias immediately addresses him as Lord. What what would you have me do? And he says, I need you to go and find Saul of Tarsus. And he's a little nervous because he knows what Saul's reputation is. he's, he's, He's called to go and lay hands on him and restore his sight, but he knows Saul's reputation as being one who has persecuted the church but has also been given authority to continue to seize people who follow the way. And so he's a little bit nervous. Now here's where this commission takes place. The the actual commissioning of the Apostle Paul as the Apostle to the Gentiles is first delivered to this man Ananias prior to him going to find Saul of Tarsus and restore his sight by by the laying on of hands. It says in verse 15 and 16, But the Lord said to him, Go, and here's the commission, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So the Apostle Paul's commission is an apostle to the Gentiles, also to the people of Israel, and to kings, but his commission is also a commission of suffering and trial. And we certainly see that play out on the pages of Scripture, as, even as the, the account by Luke in Acts unfolds. Paul becomes very much aware that this is part of his mission, too. You'll see him later on even articulate that, that this is just this is what he has been called to. He has been called for this mission and this purpose, and it will include suffering. And we see how he responds to that over and over again as well. So Ananias, in verse 17 to 19, departed and entered the house. And laying, on his, laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul... So, something happened with Ananias in this this receiving of this commission of who Paul will now be, who Saul will now be, and you see the faithfulness of Ananias in this, right? I mean, you see him as his initial response is, Lord. So, Saul says, who are you? Ananias responds, Lord, and then when he's uh, affirmed of this commission, that, that this is This is going to be a different man. This is not the man that you've heard of. This will be a different man with a different mission. And when he goes to greet him, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now I'm going to kind of just put a little sort of a bug in your ear, if you will, about this particular encounter, you'll notice that it says, He sent me that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You do not see the Apostle Paul being filled with the Holy Spirit, being baptized, and then speaking in tongues. So just put a comma there. We're going to talk about that in more detail as we we take some time possibly week after next, to uh, look at this whole issue of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in light of God's redemptive work in, in the church. Um, we're going to take a look at that and try to un- come to an understanding of it that is really clear and, and, and um, apparent from the pages of Scripture. But This is just a note there that the Apostle Paul himself is not, uh, not rising up and speaking in tongues because that already happened at Pentecost with the Jews. And we'll talk about that uh, further when we get to that point. So interestingly enough, Ananias is a a key figure in this progression. You even have this location in Damascus that is believed to be the house that he went to. It's been turned into a church uh, there in Damascus. Um, So an interesting little historical feature there. But this this kind of leads to... this account in Luke that sort of intersects or overlaps a bit with what Paul writes in Galatians. So I want to kind of give us a little bit of an indication of Paul's discipleship that takes place that we don't find in the progression of Luke's writing in Acts, but we have to go over to Galatians to look at. So if you look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 17, you kind of see how this 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 historical uh, discipleship process with the Apostle Paul Saul at the time, uh, gets underway. Of course, he's he's taken into Damascus after he's blinded on the road, and so he's in Damascus when Ananias comes to him and lays his hands on him. Something like scales fall from his eyes, his sights restored, he receives the Holy Spirit, he's strengthened. He hadn't eaten in three days or so, so he's strengthened, he takes food, he he gains his strength. But you have in Galatians chapter 1 some elements here that give us an indication of, of Paul's, development as an apostle. The first thing you see is in Galatians chapter 1, is that he was discipled by Christ for three years. In fact, let's just, I'm going to turn there as well. In Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 11, now understanding that this is not the Apostle Paul trying to make sure that the way that he's articulating this Fits completely in line with Luke's purpose in his writing. Luke's writing historical, sort of chronological, you know, picking these events, these seminal events in the development of the work of God and the development of the church in this historical flow. And at different points in time, he gets sort of a little more granular and a little more detailed, where the the clock of time is passing more slowly. And at other times, Luke steps back and he's sweeping through events very fast. And so you can have in one chapter a lot of time pass, whereas in another chapter it might be just you know one year or something like that. Well, the Apostle Paul in Galatians basically is is not writing to to as, as a as a primary focus to provide a historical narrative of his journeys or his discipleship or whatever. This context is him basically defending himself as an apostle, that this is this is the gospel that he was taught by Christ himself, and the gospel, any other gospel is anathema. Anyone who comes and speaks a different gospel, like what the Judaizers were preaching to all the churches up in Galatia that we'll talk about when we get to his missionary journeys, But, but he's saying I'm telling you, the gospel that I brought to you is the gospel from Christ himself. And so that's what he's doing. He's kind of, but, he, but he does give us some historical context that kind of fits in and helps us have some backdrop to, to what's happening here in Acts. So we see this in, Acts, excuse me, in Galatians chapter 1. For I would, have, I would have you know, verse 11 of Galatians 1, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, Nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, there's there's some of the Apostle Paul's theology that we're going to see play out later on, Um, particularly in Ephesians, we see this strongly, and in Romans, of course. He said, but when he had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, so again, salvation by grace, a major, major uh, doctrinal instruction from Paul, by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none other than the apostles, none of the the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So you have this this context of of Paul's discipleship with Christ while he's in Arabia and Damascus. There's not a real clear indication of how much time he was specifically in Damascus and how much time he sort of left Damascus and went out into the Arabian area. Um, we don't have that specifically, but we know the total amount of time was three years. And so, interestingly enough, that's the same amount of time that the original 12 were with Jesus, being discipled by him in preparation for the ministry that they would have. So the Apostle Paul receives a three-year discipleship program, if you will, as this apostle to the Gentiles as he's in Arabia and Damascus for this three-year period of time. You see there... How he makes this what we'll call a secret trip. It's a trip that no one else really knows about. It's you know, it, it, uh, Luke doesn't record it in Acts, but apparently he goes to Jerusalem, and he just meets with Peter and James. It says there in Galatians he didn't meet with any of the other apostles, but he's just giving them, giving the the readers in Galatia that this is a gospel that I learned from Christ directly. I didn't I didn't get this from anyone else, and in fact I didn't even meet. Peter and James, I didn't meet any of the other apostles, and I only met Peter and James on one, my first trip down to Jerusalem. But then after that, he goes back to Damascus, and when he returns to, to Damascus, that's when things begin to heat up as he's teaching and preaching in the synagogues. And, and again, this is a, a common refrain that we'll see over and over again. It happened with Peter, it happened with James, it happened with Philip. I mean, it happens over and over again where hostility from the Jewish leaders who do not receive the gospel turn against these, these gospel witnesses and these apostles and, and you know, either, either stir up the people or stir up the Roman over, overlords or they try to do something or they even resort to physical violence to try to thwart this, this move of God that is being uh, carried out by uh, these, these apostles. So he returns to Damascus and this is kind of where we pick up uh, in Acts chapter 9 where we see the account, in fact, uh, let's look at that really quickly, so you can just kind of get your, your bearings a little bit on the flow of this. If you look in Acts chapter 9 and see verse 23 there, it says, when many days had passed, so there's Luke just not really specifying anything. I mean, we don't know how many days, but we have to assume that whenever he says that, it's quite a bit of time. This picks up the account where the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And then he comes to Jerusalem, and this is when he begins to interact with and encounter the other apostles and the other people in the church. Barnabas kind of becomes an advocate for him as well in this whole process. So, at any rate, uh, this is sort of the, the discipleship program that the Apostle Paul undergoes um, as part of this preparation for him to become the Apostle of the Gentiles. This just kind of gives you a little bit of a map view. It doesn't cover every piece of it, but it kind of gives you the spread. There, he's obviously from Tarsus, and he probably comes down through Antioch to come to Jerusalem initially, um, and then you know where Stephen is obviously stoned, and then he makes his way to Damascus and out into Arabia, you see that little looping thing there where he's going out into sort of the area of Arabia and then back to Damascus. This doesn't give you the reflection of this other journey down to Jerusalem, but this is just sort of the, the initial time where he's in Damascus and Arabia. Just to give you kind of a lay of the land there, his early travels uh, and what he did. But this is this is this is the Apostle Paul and this is sort of on the on the cusp of the Apostle Paul's Mission to the Gentiles. However, this major transition that we're, we're involved in right now, as we look at this historical record of the first century church, and this ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles does not begin with the Apostle Paul. It actually begins with Peter. And this is what we see next in this whole major transition. And this is where we really start to see this transition in theology, this transition in thinking that has to take place. Particularly represented by Peter, but Peter certainly is representative of the others who were of Jewish descent and, and Jewish background and Jewish faith and Jewish practice and Jewish worship who were coming to faith in Christ, either the apostles and the disciples who were with him while he was here, while Christ was here ministering and teaching, or those who were coming to faith in Christ as a result of the apostles' witness at, after Pentecost. You have this particular chapter in Acts chapter 10. As a major turning point and a major highlight of this shift in thinking, this necessary transition in theology and understanding, you see this in acts chapter ten so let 's take a bit of time this cent- so this centers on Peter, like I said uh, you would you know the the apostle Paul being known as being the apostle to the gentiles, sometimes you might assume that um, you know if you hadn 't looked at this in a while or hadn't studied this before, this particular section in Acts. It's easy to assume that the Apostle Paul, you know, the the gospel and the message to the Gentiles really begins when the Apostle Paul begins his first missionary journey and makes his way uh, over to Cyprus and then to the churches up in the Galatia Galatia region. But no, it happens actually uh, in Acts chapter 10 with Peter. Of course, this is a statue of Peter in uh, St. Peter's circle in uh, Vatican City. And you'll notice, just as the way it actually is, that he has the keys to the kingdom of heaven in his hands. That's probably how he looks right now. Uh, Just kidding. Um, This is obviously a very Catholic representation of Peter, but I just put it up there for just a visual aid. That's all. It's not a theological statement at all. Um, So Acts chapter 10. So let's kind of take a look at this major transition that takes place, primarily involving Peter. This is the account where Peter... Uh, goes and brings the gospel to Cornelius and his household, Cornelius, this uh, centurion of the Italian cohort, we're told, at the very beginning of Acts chapter 10. Now, in just looking at this, we, I don't wanna, we can't spend a lot of time going through every, every little detail of this account, but I do want to kind of draw your attention to some of the, the key points here that I think are really compelling indicators of this major transition that's actually taking place. When you look at this account of of the gospel coming to Cornelius, this this Roman centurion and his his family, you see some key uh, indicators that this this major shift is indeed significant. It is no small thing. Uh, The first one I would just kind of draw your attention to is you have what obviously is a necessary preparation for this, this gospel witness. And this major shift in the gospel coming to those outside of Judaism, uh, this preparation that obviously is necessary. It begins with these visions. You see, in in Acts chapter ten, verses one to sixteen, the vision begins. Uh, the first vision begins with Cornelius, where he. Uh, it says about the ninth hour, he, in verse 3 of Acts chapter 10, he saw clearly in a vision of an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, a different Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier, and from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So the first vision is a vision that comes to Cornelius. Cornelius is a God-fearer. He is, he is one who, uh, it says here that he, his, his, um, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So here's, here's someone who is outside uh, the Jewish circle, but who has embraced belief in the one true God. And understanding this this is the this is the the rollout, if you will, of God's redemptive work in salvation through Christ. So he's still on the periphery of it, but he's definitely a, a faithful God fearer and one who believes in the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he's a Gentile. He's a Roman centurion. And this first vision comes, and then you have another vision. You have Peter, who is in a totally different place, not even near Caesarea. And he's on the housetop uh, praying, and um, he becomes hungry. He falls into a trance. And then he sees something like a great sheet descending, it says in verse 11. And it's like a sheet that's being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Okay, this, These are unclean animals. These are, these are animals that, from the Jews' perspective, you don't even touch. And yet this voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Common or unclean is a key idea or principle that you need to keep in mind here in this account. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So, just to give you perspective here about this necessary preparation, a vision of an angel comes to Cornelius one time. Got it calls the men, sends them to go find whoever this Simon Peter is who's with Simon the Tanner. I don't know who this guy, but I'm I'm doing it. Done. Peter, three times, three times has to receive this vision. He's still resistant. This is how ingrained this principle is in his mind and in his theology. May it never be that I would touch or come near anything common or unclean. Well, it says in verse seventeen, you begin to have another indication of how major a transition this is, because you see Peter's reaction, in his state of mind. He's described as being perplexed and pondering what this means. Like his state of, he, like Cornelius, the vision, obedient sends the guys to go find Peter. Peter three times he sees the vision, this vision. And he doesn't know what it means. Even though he was told directly what God has made clean, don't call common or unclean. So in verse 17 it says, While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, imagine that, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. In verse 19, And while Peter was pondering the vision, He's still stewing over this. The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter responds as he's told. It says, And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is, it that, what is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Well, you have this other indication. Once Peter gets to Cornelius' house, you have another indication of how major a shift this is when you see what, what Cornelius does when Peter walks in. You see this... In verse 25, it says, When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Cornelius responds with Peter's entry as though he is to be worshipped. This certainly is taking Peter off guard. Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And then he says this. You have, you have this, what I call Peter's insult slash confession. Because what Peter says, basically, is, you know, I really shouldn't be here. That, that's what he says. He says, he, he, after he lifted him up, and he, and he humbly said, I'm just a man, just like you. And he talked with them. he went in and found many persons gathered, verse 28, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter's starting to understand now. He's starting to see, after having to have this vision come to him three different times, after that resulting in him pondering it, being perplexed by it, not sure what it means, having a direct word from the Spirit of God go with these men to Cornelius, having him go to Cornelius, and Cornelius just not knowing what this all means either and falling down at Peter's feet and worshiping him, Peter then recognizes, okay, normally I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be associating with you. I shouldn't be seen with you. But, but I have a confession. I'm starting to see God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. This is not about reptiles on a sheet, Peter, and he's getting it. But this is a major, major turning point for him. Well, it doesn't end there, because as the story goes on, you see that the the as Peter is teaching them, he's, he's understanding what's going on, and he's teaching them, and uh, it says... For example, in verse 34, he says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. He goes on to begin to teach them. And it says down in verse 44, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. This is another indication of how significant this transition is because you see the amazement of Peter's companions when this next step happens where you have the spirit of God confirming that salvation is yes in fact for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. It says there in verse 45, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come to Peter, who'd come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. This is earth-shattering for them, that the gospel message would be for them, and that it would be sealed, it would be confirmed, even by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, just in the same way. You'll notice that they were, they, the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles in verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Again, this is contrasted to what happened with Paul. This is a different baptism event, of the Holy Spirit amongst these Gentiles. And they begin to have the same response to this outpouring, this baptism of the Holy Spirit that you saw at Pentecost and that you also saw with the Samaritans. But it goes further, and we're not going to spend any time uh, too much dealing with this, because when you get to Acts chapter 11, you see where Peter ends up back in Jerusalem and he's providing this report to all those in Jerusalem, to James, the other apostles, that are gathered there. This is sort of the sort of leadership central, if you will, of of the the new church, the New Testament church. And he's explaining to them. He's basically uh, the first major portion of Acts chapter eleven is just almost an exact recounting of what happened in Acts chapter ten because he's reporting this uh, to those gathered there in Jerusalem. But it's really it's really uh, funny to, to see what, what how they respond initially when he starts to tell them that he went up to uh, to um, to to see Cornelius, it says, uh, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, in in Acts chapter 11, verse 2, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to circumcised men and ate with them? You did what? So this is just another indication. This this, This is this theological transition that's taking place that Peter is sort of on the forefront of, and he begins to explain to them exactly everything that happened with the visions with his time with them, and with Cornelius and his family, with what happened with the Holy Spirit coming. And then you get down to the end of this recounting of the events that took place and were described in Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, when these uh, Jews in Jerusalem, these Jewish believers in Jerusalem, heard these things, they fell silent, stunned silence. They can't believe that this is happening. And then it says, they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the beginning of this major transition from a Judaism, Jewish centric understanding of the gospel to the gospel for every tongue, tribe, and nation circumcised, uncircumcised. Like Peter said, it is not right for me to consider any person common or unclean. Major, major shift. Major challenge. Major opportunity that unfolds as we go forward. Well, that's where we're going to stop today. We're going to pick up... uh, Actually, I may not be here next week. We we may be out of town. um, So I'm not sure exactly what we'll do next week. If... uh, uh, if I'll be here, we'll continue on, and if not, then uh, someone else will be here to, you know, do a better job than I do. So so we'll uh, look forward to that. I'll be back uh, for sure a week after next, and we'll continue on in our study and probably pick up the pace. We'll, I want to get to the missionary journeys. That's when some exciting things also happen when we start looking at Paul's missionary journeys. Um, also going to deal with, uh, after the first missionary journey, the Jerusalem Council. Uh, Again, the development of theology and doctrine is really important as we get to Acts chapter 15, so we'll spend a little bit of time there as well. Any final thoughts or questions? Complaints? By the way, Alicia's uh, chairman of the complaint department, so if you want to submit your complaints in writing, you can submit them to her. All right, Well, let's close in prayer and we'll be dismissed.